Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and start since we're into the one o'clock hour and I've only got a couple more hours, but you'll notice that I slowed down a little bit at the last session because in my, the first weekend I was trying to cover a lot of information. And then when I looked at it, I was like, oh man, I'm not even, I'm not even to like the uh, uh, book of Samuel yet. And so then I figured I got to, I got to kind of hurry up a little bit. So I summarized and, and went very quickly. And then uh, this morning I realized, actually, I think I'm going to make it. So, so I slowed down this morning and last night it was kind of fast. You may have noticed. And then I also noticed about nine o'clock, everybody was half dead. So (laughs) now you're all half alive. So it's good. It's like, like that death and resurrection all over again. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little about Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, Psalms begins with the letter P, but you don't pronounce the P. Otherwise, it'd be Psalms. So, Proverbs, Proverbs. Okay, so I'll start with Psalms here a little bit. All right. The word psalm means stringed instrument. And the reason is because you ever seen that little harpy thing that uh, King David is often pictured with? It's a stringed instrument. And psalms typically, not always, but typically these psalms were sung. And they were sung with accompaniment with instruments. And so um, one way to look at psalms is, is some people will call them songs. But uh, psalms are just oftentimes hymns, um, sometimes poetry. And this is something else that there were parallels in the ancient world. And the Israelites, they took the psalm genre and really developed it. And we have 150 different psalms. And even to this day, we in the Catholic Church, for example, we have this liturgy, the uh, office And then with that, we have these different psalms included at various times of the day that we pray in the morning, the midday, and in the evening, and the night prayers. And these psalms all mix up. In addition to that, the psalms were uh, something in the ancient world that the Jews used to memorize and pray um, in their own daily ways. So they would pray at different times during the day. Um, Jesus himself prayed the psalms. And oftentimes, even when uh, he's showing his quoting something, that would be a psalm. Like, for example, the, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we hear that and we're like, oh, Jesus is despairing. But that's not actually true. If you read the rest of that psalm that he's quoting, that's just the first line of the psalm. You read the rest of the psalm, it shows that ultimately God triumphs. And so what Jesus is doing is while he's on the cross, he's praying the psalm. But he's bringing, by saying that first line, he's bringing the whole psalm 
into the forefront of his mind and expressing that to the people that even though he is suffering in this moment, that in the end, God will triumph, you know? So it's, uh, it's not a psalm of despair, even though in his humanity, of course, he suffered. But it's a psalm that says that even in that suffering, he knows that there's going to be divine restitution and restoration. All right, so there's uh, poetry and psalms that exist even before the book of Psalms. In Exodus chapter 15, we have the Song of Moses. And that is actually one of the oldest, um, they think, um, parts of the Bible, actually. Some of, those, some of those psalms that you see and songs that are written in the Pentateuch are some of the oldest that we have as Scripture. There's also the uh, victory of Debe- Deborah, Judges chapter 5. There's the song of the well in Numbers chapter 21. And then there's David's song consider, uh, concerning Saul and Jonathan. That's 2 Samuel, the first chapter there. There are different literary forms of the psalm, meaning they have different intentions and they're written for different, different reasons. Sometimes they're hymns. All right, a lot of them are hymns. So we have like Psalm 8, 19, 29, 33, 46 through 48, 76, 84, 87, 93, 96 through 100, 103, 106, 113, 14, 17, 22, 135, 136, 145 through 50. Well, there's a lot of psalms, right? So anyway, there's a lot of psalms that have to do with hymns. And then there are psalms that are petitions. So they're prayers that are asking God for something in particular. So there are, po- there are collective ones. That's where the psalmist is praying for Israel or for the people. And there's a whole bunch of those as well. There are individual petitions, and there are a whole bunch of those. Um, I could read them off, but there's a lot of them. So just kind of keep that in mind that you've got their hymns, petitions, and then the last subset are psalms of thanksgiving. And so the psalms of thanksgiving um, include as well that that understanding that, that God has gifted them, therefore it's like psalms of praise. So it's like praise, acclamation, and joy. So you have songs, petitions, and thanksgiving. Those are the three primary literary forms. Uh, psalms are also connected to worship. Uh, I should back up a little bit. They also have lamentation. So lamentation is it was a, a style of prayer that we don't necessarily do it, in a systematic way like they used to, but that's when things are really not going bad and you're um, expressing it. So you know how often people will uh, think that, well, when I pray to God, I have to pray like in a positive way. So I need to be thankful and I need to say, Lord, thanks for this and do this. And, you know, but things go badly in our lives. We have a hard time praying with that. We don't know what to do with it. And in the Bible, actually, people take whatever has happened to them, whether it's good or bad, and they still bring it to the Lord. And so it's, it's perfectly acceptable to cry out to God in your suffering and sorrow, just as well as in your joy. And uh, so anyway, you have psalms of lamentation as well. All right, that's better. It's like last week I almost lost my voice. I was trying to. 
Okay, sometimes you have psalms that are written within the kingly court, and the psalmist would be the cantor. And you'll notice in some psalms they have like little marks that say different things, and that could be where different people are singing different parts or it's instructions on how to sing the particular song, psalms. And many of them in English, they don't have the same rhythm that they would have in Hebrew. But many of the psalms were not only written in a style that they go well with music, but there's a certain cadence to the way that they were written. And so when we read them, and they don't seem like they flow so well, just keep in mind that in Hebrew, sometimes they, they, they write it deliberately in a way that allows the different words to be sung in a style that has movement. And sometimes that was because they would use it during festivals and processions. Um, sometimes they would have sacrifices that would be offered with a particular psalm. Many of them had different directions, like I mentioned. And uh, just to give you a few examples, Psalm 66, 76, 81, 107, 116, 134, 135, and then to another degree, 20, 26, and 27, all have some instruction showing that they could be used to uh, facilitate worship and, and they would have uh, directions on how to do that. They have the Songs of Ascent. Um, that's 120 through 34, 126 and 84. Those were used on pilgrimages, and it's the ascent of going up to Jerusalem or up to the Temple Mount in uh, those types of ascents, more like on procession. And it was also the official hymn book of the temple and the synagogue. And so to a certain extent, it still is our official hymnal in the church. That when we, you notice when we're at Mass that we do the first reading, then we do the psalm. The psalm is intended not to be read, but to be sung. That's the intention. You can read it if you have to. But the ideal is that it's sung because a psalm is um, part of our hymnal. You know, it's the, it's the one hymnal that never changes. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about Proverbs. Can you sing it any way you want? You can sing it any way you want. I, I Maybe I'm trying to think of a reason why that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> but I guess if we're all singing something different and we're at church, then it might not be the case. But if we're by ourselves, yeah. I thought you had to do a Gregorian chant. No, because Psalms predate chant. Gregorian chant, that is. The Babylonians... Um, there's another little tangent here, but sometimes, uh, people will look at Gregorian Chan as if that's the only type of music that existed in the church. And it's really not before that there was antiphical music where people would sing back and forth. There were certain patterns and styles in the, uh, Jewish world. They had a style of chanting that they did. Um, it goes back also to the Babylonians who had a certain style of music and chant that they did and, uh, music changes over time. So the uh, Gregorian chant that we use in the church actually came um, from the early Middle Ages, or a little earlier than that. And then it's got its heritage that goes back before that, but it was codified. That's why they call it Gregorian chant. Gregory the Great um, was the one who kind of instituted that as the norm. All right, but anyway, that's a little off. Okay, so when we're looking at Proverbs, Solomon is the traditional founder of the Proverbs. So in 1 Kings chapter 4, there's a description, and he is you know, mentioned as being one of Proverbs. There's also the, uh, um, 
He's also considered the writer of Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and the Book of Wisdom. That even though Solomon didn't write most of those, he's still, it's still attributed to him. And so there's the connection between him and wisdom and Proverbs. And so originally, Solomon may have collected a number of Proverbs. And as he did that, there were later additions. So chapters 25 through 29 were ascribed to Solomon but written down in the time of King Hezekiah, and that was between 715 and 687 B.C. And uh, anyway, so just because it's a script, it's attributed to Solomon doesn't mean that they're all written by him, but there seems to be some basis that, that this started with him and people started to collect these different Proverbs and write them down. Many of the sayings that we have in Proverbs reflect other cultures at the time. And uh, just to give you some examples, so there was uh, some sayings in the Sumerians' world, 3000 B.C., but between two and 3000. Um, here's one that's kind of funny, actually. A chattering scribe, his guilt is great. So you have to think about that. In other words, someone who talks too much, it's like, don't trust him. It's like the salesman who never shuts up, right? All right, he's up to something. You know, well, the chattering scribe, the scribe is the one, you know, if he's, if he's going on and on and on and on, you know, well, he's guilty. You know, if he's trying to, if you're trying to protest your innocence, I think you protest too much, you know, like uh, Shakespeare. Anyway, so that's a Sumerian one. So here's an Egyptian one. So there's Amenhotep. So he says, one thing are the words said by men. Another thing is what the God does, you know. That's another proverb. It's in the style of proverb. You know, it's not in the Bible, obviously, but it's the style of proverbs where you were saying that, well, people can say whatever they want, but what God ends up doing is, you know, what God ends up doing. So you can plan all you want, but in the end, it's not really up to you. Anyway, these are little sayings that they have. But there are some sort of parallels. For example, in, Pro- in Proverbs 19.21, here's the uh, Israel equivalent of that. The plans in the mind of men are many, but it is God's purpose that will prevail. You know, so there were wise sayings, obviously, that existed in other cultures. So we should not be scandalized in any way when we say, hey, you know what? Other cultures have wise sayings. Of course they have wise sayings. That's what cultures do. But what Proverbs does is it brings in the sense of wisdom and connects it to God and his ways and his plan. And so here you see you know, uh, an Egyptian saying that gets interpreted in a way that shows divine wisdom. And the plans of the mind are many, but God's purpose prevails. Okay, so they're in the book of Psalms. It seems almost chaotic, like they're all just uh, put in, in the pages randomly. But chapters 1 through 9 are label, labeled the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. So those are attributed specifically to Solomon. Chapters 10 through 22 are labeled Proverbs of Solomon. So it doesn't say the son of David on those ones, but still 10 more, a little more than 10 more. And then chapter 22, 17 through 24, 22, those are sayings of the wise. And then from 24, chapter 24, 23 through 34 is also the saying of the wise. So what you can see is there was the original book, and then they compiled editions that they said additional wise sayings from different wise people. 
And then from chapters 25 to 29, more Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. All right, Hezekiah, of course, came later, obviously. He was the first semi-good king before, uh, remember there were two that were semi-good. One was Hezekiah, the other was Josiah. Josiah was better than Hezekiah, but those were the only two that had a bit of a favorable rating in the book of Kings. And, uh, but that was much later. And then chapter 30, you have the saying, the sayings of Agur, son of Jake, an oracle. And so, anyway, that was a, um, Masa is a tribe in northern Arabia, so it's kind of connected to that somewhere along the line. And then chapter 31, the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle. And again, he's a king from Arabia. And so that was some sort of tradition of wisdom coming from the east. And it may seem like that's totally unrelated, um, but there is a connection in the New Testament with the Magi who are wise you know, magi who come from the east. So there was a bit of a tradition as well as wisdom that could come from other sources. And, you know, and that would be part of, you know, a little thread in there. So all are collections of Proverbs, and there's no real clear order, except to a certain degree between chapters 1 and 9, and that's because it forms a prologue. It's an explanation of wisdom as a way of life. And true wisdom is fear of the Lord. And when we say fear of the Lord, I'm sure you all realize this, but just so you know, it doesn't mean be scared of the Lord, um, but it does mean approach the Lord with humble reverence and awe and realize his majesty. So it's, you know, it's that idea of, of coming to the Lord in a, in a sense of reverence and awe and humility. So the first talk about fear of the Lord and wisdom as a way of life. So... Afterwards, there are some types of advice that come around from Proverbs. So you have pragmatic. Sometimes it's just uh, Proverbs that are just very practical. And sometimes it's secular even. How to manage money is in the book of Proverbs. Then there's some materialistic aspects. And then there are religious reflections on God. So to give you some, I won't go back and look them up, but um, materialistic, chapter 11, Verse 4, secular, chapter 14, 28, or 29, 4. Pragmatic, chapter 21, 20, 24, 27. And then chapter 25, verse 17. Re- religious reflections on God, chapter 10, verse 27. Chapter 20, verse 22. Chapter 21, verse 3. Okay, so there are other types in the book of Proverbs. Relationship of parents and children, contrast between the just and the wicked in their behavior, the value of good friends and a loving wife. That's another one that works its way into the marriage um, readings. You know, the, the loving wife, and then kind of has a good list of all the things she does. And uh, then there's virtues of honesty, generosity, justice, and integrity. And then there's personal mastery of passion and self-control. Proper use of speech, stewardship over wealth, prudence and hard work and planning for the future, manners and proper behavior before superiors, the value of wisdom over foolish or reckless behavior. And so the ancients saw Proverbs as a treasure of practical advice to ponder. And so 
to a certain degree, I think we might be able to um, take advantage of this or recapture it because most people aren't really reading the book of Proverbs too much. Or they read a section here or there, or they try to read it like a book. And when you read it like a book, it, it's just really hard to contain because you, you just kind of go through it and you're like, it's hard to keep anything in your memory. So um, what I would suggest is kind of do what uh, they used to do back then is just take a couple Proverbs, think about it during the day, you know, take it with you in the morning. And um, some of them may relate, some may not relate, but as, as a whole, it does tend to do a couple things. It connects us with the pursuit of wisdom and it connects us with God himself. So they're not only points to ponder, but it keeps us in relationship like a prayer with trying to connect ourselves with God's own holy wisdom. Oh, some people see Proverbs. I put that in there as a joke. It's like a Jewish fortune cookie. Because you know how they always have like little sayings, you know, Confucius say. But anyway... Okay, Ecclesiastes. It goes by various names. Koheleth is, is the other name. And what it means is someone who speaks in the assembly. So the assembly is a word that in Greek um, is ekklesia. And many of you might know that that is the Greek word for church, the assembly. So the ekklesia or Ecclesiastes, you know, it's, it's that which is spoken in the assembly. It's identified again with Solomon, and specifically um, chapter 1, verse 16, also in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. And that is used as a bit of a literary device to connect uh, the, the Jews with their heritage, as well as connect them with the understanding that this is a book of wisdom. It was written in Hebrew with an Aramaic influence, and there are a couple Persian words. So do you remember in the past when I was talking about the, uh, the Pentateuch and, and how some people think that the priestly source is something that's post-exilic. Well, if it's post-exilic, you would expect there to be some Persian words, like those loan words that would creep into the text, but there aren't any. And so that's why um, many scholars think that that traditional dating of parts of that Pentateuch are, are too early and they need to be pushed back a lot later. Well, here's an example of how you can date something based on some of the Persian loanwords that that come. So you know that, first of all, since it's written with an Aramaic influence, that even if it's in Greek, then you do have you do have that uh, um, historical dating that can happen. You know, it's at least post-exile with some Persian influence and just before the Greek period. So it's it's in that range. They have fragments of this book from Qumran. That's from the Dead Sea Scrolls that date back to about 150 BC. So more than likely, this was earlier than the Greek period, but somewhere in the middle of the Persian period. You know, so thinking about 300s or something like that would probably be pretty accurate. And there is some influence with Alexandrian Egypt because they talk about this new kind of humanism that was popular at that point, like a certain kind of philosophy that was beginning to take root, but it was just starting. So anyway, it's just kind of interesting. So in Ecclesiastes, there are two parts to it, chapters 1 through 6, chapter 7 through 12. 
And there's an overall theme that all things that are human really mean nothing. And then it's trying to find meaning in worldly things leads to futility. And you know that uh, there was the song by, the, I think, the birds. Everything under the sun, turn, turn, turn. That, anyway, that's quoting Ecclesiastes. But the overall process, here's a bit of a philosophical difference. So Ecclesiastes, because it's taking a little bit of a philosophical mindset, it, it has this repetition that repeats itself over and over and over. So it's like all things are folly. And then it, and it repeats as if like history repeats itself. And, you know, fate is what fate is. And so if you're going to strive after worldly things, there's a certain um, dead end that you're always going to face. That if you're always um, chasing after things of this world, then that will never satisfy, that will never fulfill. The implication is that when you are turning to God, then he will give you what you need to have satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, But the things of this world will never do that. That everything of this world really comes to nothing. And it's futile. Even all these famous people, in the end, whatever became of them, woe is, you know, life and folly. And so anyway, it's, it almost seems a little depressing. Some people read it and they say, this is depressing. You know, but you have to kind of look at some of the sub-themes. First of all, human goods are temporary and illusory. So knowledge, wealth, love, even life is something that, to a certain degree, doesn't have any lasting effect. So it's all, all is illusion, you know, all is vanity of vanities. Life is a succession of meaningless events, ending in senality and death. But anyway, again, so you can read that and you say, man, this is depressing. But then again, it's like, so, so then you say, well, what about the afterlife? Well, maybe, but we can't know for sure. So verses, uh, chapter three twenty one nine. Chapters 9, 10, verse 10, and chapter 12, verse 7. So, well, maybe there's an afterlife, but we can't really know for sure. Ultimately, one must place all hope in God and resign to his will. That's the main point. So, once you get that, you can read the rest of the book and you say, well, it's not that depressing, it's just being realistic. That we can chase after whatever in this world and ultimately it won't matter. And even if there is an afterlife... Or if there's not, ultimately, if we trust in God, that's the most important thing. Actually, to one respect, Jesus was talking about this. People were saying, um, so Jesus, um, how many are saved? You know, they asked him this question. And you'd expect Jesus to come back with an answer. It's like, well, you realize actually 333 are saved this day. And the, you know, But he, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. So in other words... The answer that's important, or the question that's important, is not how many are saved. The, the, the really good question is, how do I strive to, to live, to enter through that narrow gate? Because I can speculate all I want, and speculation does nothing. But if I'm striving to enter through the narrow gate, now I'm engaged, I'm involved. And so the salvation that I'm hoping for is actually in process in some way. And so Jesus, I think, gives the best answer, even though it's not the answer people wanted. Um, in a similar way, people are like, well, Father, what do you think about the end of the world? To a large degree, I don't care, because it doesn't matter. 
What's important is that we're living this life as faithful Christians in the present. And then whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. It's not dependent on me knowing it or not knowing it. And the other danger is, is there was a certain uh, religious sect called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism says is that if you are in the inn, then you have secret knowledge that no one else knows. The word gnosis means knowledge. And if you have that secret knowledge, you're special, you're chosen, you're saved. And people who don't have that knowledge aren't. And anyway, the church always rejected Gnosticism because it was, first of all, saying that that people are saved because of what they know being included in the club, so to speak. And it doesn't leave the proper understanding that, no, we're saved from God's grace and our participation in it. And it's open to everyone. You know, so we're not like, hey, let me teach you the secret, but don't tell anyone else. You know, it's like God's revelation is for everyone. It's, it's an open book. It's what we call public revelation. But anyway, that was another little sidetrack. Okay, so it, it asks questions about um, different things, including resigning oneself to one will. But ultimately, wisdom is preferred over human folly. And the chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, is basically the conclusion. And it just says, keep the commandments and serve God. So, in a sense, it's actually a very practical book. Although it seems like it's philosophical in nature, and it is, it's talking about how, what do we really want to set our heart on? Set our heart on following the commandments and serving God, trust in Him, and then leave it in His hands, and whatever happens, happens, but He's in control. Amen. But as you read it, though, you're thinking, man, this is depressing. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't every religion kind of the same thing in its own way? You've got to be a part of the club. Okay, so Gnosticism is kind of like you have to be part of the club, but it's a secret club. And it is true to a certain extent that every religion has its beliefs and people have to belong to a certain extent. Like, you know, the Catholic Church, we do have a definite belonging. But I think the difference is, are we open book? Like, here we are, this is what it is, and it's accessible to everyone. You know, so then that's different from you only belong to our uh, club if we select you and then you're lucky enough that we bring you in and you're lucky enough that we fill you in on these secrets. And they had like mystery rituals and secret rituals and things that they did that they weren't allowed to tell others about. And if they told others, that would be breaking, you know, that type of thing. Whereas we say, no, get the gospel out there, tell all the world what it is. And it's something public and accessible to everyone and for everyone. But it does bring up another point. So in churches, sometimes there can be a culture in a church that is inward looking like we are. This is our clique. This is our church. You don't belong. You're not accepted unless you believe and act exactly like we do. And we'll make your life miserable if you somehow don't fit our criteria how a church person needs to be. So we have to be careful about that as church people. So, and, and there's this, um, for those who aren't church people, a lot of times they have this misconception. I think that Christians, um, the whole point of Christians is that, you know, they just make themselves feel good about who they are. They assume they're going to heaven and everyone else is going to hell. And I don't think that's the case to be honest with you. Um, but I think it is something that is a overgeneralization by people who are not, 
um, open to, to really discover what church is all about. So hopefully people come to a better understanding. But the bottom line is, so we're not secretive when it comes to the gospel and what we do, that we do open it up for everyone, but there is a certain, of course, initiation process. But it's open book stuff, at least in theory. In practice, we've got the normal things that all human beings do. Exclusivity. Yeah. Oh, now you're in the book of Revelation. So the book... Well, that's in the book of Revelation. We'll cover that in the New Testament. (laughs) Come back in the spring. But real quick, 144,000, what's 12 times 12? 144. Add 1,000 for emphasis. Those numbers are symbolic. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm just confusing everyone. All right, so... So let's look at the next one, Song of Songs. So the Song of Songs, at least it used to be, I don't know if it still is, but it was the most commented book of the Bible, meaning commentary. More commentary was written on the Psalm of Psalms than other books of the Bible. And the reason was, I think, to a certain degree, is because of the, is somewhat of a mystical sense to it. Um, what it is, is a big, long love poem. And it's, in its own way, it's kind of a beautiful love poem, but again, you have to get back into the the times that it was written and, and read it as if you're an ancient rather than a modern. And so what I mean by that, when they talk about, you know, look at her hair, it's like rams coming down the cliff, you know? And uh, behold, yeah, here comes my lover jumping like a stag, you know, and and then, uh, and then look at her, you know, her hair is, as, what, what was, no, her teeth are as white as lamb's wool. Yeah. So anyway, they have the, the images and stuff seem a little funny to us. I heard, I heard one commentator saying that the author was doing that on purpose to be funny. And I'm like, no, it was cultural. So anyway, I think you just have to understand that these are like poetry and meanings in poetry can change when it comes to what we consider corny and stuff like that. But in its day when it was written, it was a beautiful love poem. So just try to read it in that setting. So when was it written? They're not exactly sure. Some say that it was in the time of Solomon. um, But there's some Aramaic language. And there is a Persian word in there, orchard. And there's even a Greek word in there. And because of that, they think it was probably written probably in the 400s or the 300s or in that range. You know, so it's not exactly, or at least in its final form. It may have been based on a poem that was written during the time of Solomon, got passed down, and then was edited at some point. But, but anyway, they don't know for sure. The meaning song of songs means it's the highest of songs. And I mentioned that it's a, a poem, but, but this is the basic understanding here, is that the lover is Solomon. All right, so chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 7. And then the beloved is the girl of Shulam. I don't know who that girl is, but anyway, that's the object of his affection. And it goes back and forth between them. Now, what's interesting, there's no specific mention of God in that poem. So that's somewhat unique in the Bible. So no specific mention of God. And because of that, some people say it's just a secular love poem. But the problem is that the Jews 
always accepted it as being something that relates to their relationship with God. So then they say, well, it's a Jewish allegory. God is the lover. Israel is the beloved. And then as Christians, of course, we do this too. It's Christ and the church. Um, what's interesting is how easily that the Song of Songs is able to offer a metaphorical understanding that goes to the spiritual level. And another thing that's, that's good about it is that even though it's about the lover and the beloved, um, there's just something natural about that when you're talking about covenant, God relationship, marriage, love. It just all has this very nice flow, even though it's not specific. So I think it's safe to say that even though it's not specific, it's religious in nature, and because of that, it wants to draw people into seeing it on many different levels. So it can see it on the level of marriage. It can, you can see it as the level of um, God and his people. And you can see it in your personal relationship with God and Christ calling you. you know? So when you read the Song of Songs, um, you, you, you have to kind of work with the imagery a little bit, but try to imagine it in these different ways, and it'll make a little more sense. The Jews sang it during their weddings. And it's a collection of songs celebrating royal and mutual love that leads to marriage. It really highly exalts the value of human love. Okay, one thing that it, that it does very well is it shows that we're not Puritans. It shows that love is not bad and sex is not dirty. You know, that it's really part of God's creation and, and there's a certain elevation that happens here. But at the same time, it pulls it into the idea of a covenant loving relationship and something that calls to a higher ideal. So it's not the kind of the base sexual gratification for lust, but it's more this, this total encompassing giving of oneself to the other and longing and finding that fulfillment in, in a way that, that you know, comes about through this poem. All right. I kind of mentioned some of this stuff already. Okay, I think that's probably good enough. I could go on, but I got a lot of more stuff to go over. So we've got to make sure we get there. All right, so now we'll look at the Book of Wisdom. The Book of Wisdom, whether it was written in Alexandria, Egypt or not, it does hold a lot of that philosophy that was popular in that time. So the book of wisdom is deuterocanonical. It was written in Greek. It is the last book that was written in the old Testament that we know of time-wise. So it's not Malachi. It's not at the end of the old Testament, but it is the last book that was written time-wise. It was written about hundred AD. I mean, hundred BC. And they think it was written by an Alexandrian Jew just because of the context, the philosophy and the style. It was written in Greek, and it's addressed to diaspora Jews in Egypt. And in particular, it's addressed to them, but against mystery religions and popular philosophies. So even though it's philosophical in nature, it tends to be a bit of a counter against those Jews who lived in Alexandria who were going over to some of those mystery religions. And uh, um, think about those kind of Gnostic secret kind of things that I was talking about. So it wasn't. It was not exactly Gnosticism yet, but they had similar things that were very popular in Egypt. In addition to that, philosophy, because of the Greek influence, was very popular as well. And so 
the book of wisdom was trying to draw people into understanding a t- using philosophy in a way that draws people closer to God's wisdom rather than just human wisdom. It's rooted in Solomon and often in the first person. So chapter 7, verse 7. Here's wisdom personified. So chapter 7, verse 27, if you read from there on, it talks about wisdom being almost personified, which, again, I talked about that, but that's um, it's something that Christians used to talk about the Holy Spirit, or sometimes it's used in reference to Jesus being together with the Father uh, before time. And, you know, there, there's some uh, precedent to that. There's contrast between the just and the wicked, between wisdom and idolatry. So you notice it's not wisdom and being stupid, but it's wisdom and idolatry. You know, that idolatry is considered the unwise person. All right, so in the uh, three parts, part one is the importance of wisdom. The just live like God's intent, like God intends. Hades will not prevail. Eternal life is a reward. So it, once again, it explicitly talks about eternal life. And it talks about it um, in a very explicit sense. Wicked or punishment by God through dishonor in this life. Okay, another side note. When we hear about the Jewish mindset, we don't fully appreciate the idea of honor and shame. So honor is better than life. Shame is worse than death. Uh, So just kind of keep that in mind. I mean, to this day, like when you... uh, uh, for those of you who remember the first um, Iraq war, when Saddam Hussein was there and he was saying, um, yes, we have nuclear weapons of mass destruction and, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do. And, and, and you're thinking, what is going, why, do, why does this guy do this? You know, all he has to do is tell the truth. But he wouldn't because he would lose face. There would be a shaming thing. And then there was a guy on the radio. It, meanwhile, the, the Allied troops or the Americans are coming in and they're taking over Babylon, and he's saying, we are crushing you under our feet, you know, and he's going on and on, and you're like, what is that all about? Well, to this day in the Middle East, you have to preserve, say, face, and then shaming someone is a fate fate worse than death. Now, we Americans, we don't really understand that so much, but anyway, just kind of keep that in mind. It puts a lot of things in context about why they did what they did. So... It's just a cultural thing where where shame is just like the worst kind of thing could ever happen to you. If you were shamed, your family is shamed. Um, that explains a lot of the things that happen in the Middle East with honor killings and things like that. It's this, you know, I'm sure they don't want to do that, but it's because of that shame is such a strong, strong factor in their culture. Yeah. And then um, anyway, that's just kind of part of that. All right, now that I'm done with that tangent, where am I? (laughs) Eternal life. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's it. The wicked are punished through dishonor. And then the wicked are sent away and separated from God in the next life. So not only in this life, but in the life to come. But the just must remain strong and persevere. All right, so the second part, um, chapter 6 through 9, talks about the nature of wisdom. So... There should be a desire for wisdom. And by the way, they have these qualities of wisdom. There are 21 of those, 7 times 3, you know, some of those numbers. That's in chapter 7, 21 through 24. There are characteristics and connections with God. 
And this comes through prayer and meditation. All right, the third part, wisdom guiding Israel from Adam to the Exodus. And so this is what you call uh, a bit of a, what they call Jewish midrash. And that's where you take Old uh, Testament stories and you reinterpret them and add additional meanings. And uh, you can use exegesis, parables, and legends, but you're, you're basing it on the old uh, stories, and then you're reinterpreting a, and adding significance that applies to the present. Okay, so for example, chapters 10 through 19. So there's an emphasis on Egypt for some reason, right? Remember, he's in Alexandria. So he's trying to draw a connection that there's a connection between the Egyptian Jews and their history. All right, so... Here's something kind of interesting. Let's see if I can find this real quick. So I'm using a Bible that's not my Bible. There it is. Okay. Thirteen one. Okay. Yes, naturally stupid are all those who are unaware of God. And who from good things seen have not been able to discover him who is, or by studying the works have not recognized the author. Okay, so anyway, this idea is this natural understanding that that even if people didn't know anything, they would be able to look around creation and they would understand that there's a natural law in place. And it's just self-evident that God exists and therefore, we have an obligation to, whether we know anything or not specifically revealed, uh, we would have enough information to be able to know that we have to praise the God who created it and who sustains it. So anyway, this is a little bit of a um, beginning of that. Now, St. Paul will use that as well as a bit of his introduction to the book of Romans. And it's... The retribution of God from heaven is being revealed against the ungodly and the injustice of human beings who in their injustice hold back the truth. For what can be known about God is perfectly plain to them since God has made it plain to them ever since the creation of the world. The invisible existence of God and his everlasting power has been clearly seen in the mind's understanding of created things. So these people have no excuse for they knew God, yet they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. 
but in their arguments became futile in their uncomprehending minds, and they were darkened. So St. Paul is using the same logic of wisdom, saying God is self-evident, his works are clearly to be seen. If anyone with any kind of intelligence just opens his mind or her mind, um, he would know that, but it's only in stubbornness and darkness of mind that people would negate what is truly evidence that there is God and he created and we are part of that creation and we have the obligation to give him honor. So what Paul writes about is actually going back to the book of wisdom. Okay, so in addition to that, we have uh, other similarities with Paul. So we have it in Colossians 1, 18, and we have it in Romans, wait a minute, 1, 7. Oh, there it is. Okay. So we have it in Colossians 1.18, and then we have 13.1. Oh, my notes are all messed up. Well, anyway, in Colossians as well as Romans, you know, we do have that. I read the ones from Romans already. All right, but I got I to gotta move on a little bit. So we're going to go to Sirach, or if you want to be fancy, Ecclesiasticus. Okay, so Ecclesiasticus, it's the same thing. Ecclesia in Greek means church or gathering or assembly. And so this is the book of the church. That's what Ecclesiasticus means. Um, Later they found this book because first all they had was the Greek. But then with the Dead Dead Sea Scrolls, they found some of the Hebrew. And so uh, Sirach was written in Hebrew originally. And... In 1896, two-thirds of it was discovered from a synagogue in Egypt. In 1964, in Qumran and Masada, they found fragments of it. And uh, so then they got sections in Greek, but they were able to reconstruct the Hebrew enough uh, to find, you know, a, a better, with the combination of manuscripts, a better translation. So the Bible follows the Greek text in order, but there are Hebrew footnotes when variant. And... Someone asked during the break about how come if sometimes you're reading and then the, the numbers don't match up, um, or sometimes chapters will show up in different spots. And that's because that when they put the number system, uh, John Langton, I think, he was the one who uh, put the numbers to in chapters and verses in the Bible. Well, since then, they found better and newer manuscripts that were more accurate and found that some places were misplaced. So they put them in, but they just kind of retained the numbering system and the chapters and verses. So, anyhow. So this one, the book of Sirach, is the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. By the way, ben, if you ever wonder what that means, is son of. So Jesus, son of Sirach. Like Simon, well, Bar means it too. Simon Bar Jonah. So it was written from around 180 B.C. It's translated and forwarded by his grandson at 132 B.C., Sirach was a scribe, he was a traveler, he was employed at the court and settled in Jerusalem as an older man, and then he set up a school. So it's the, kind of the beginning of that rabbinical school-type style. The bottom line here is that its wisdom is from God, and it's connected to following the law of Moses. Um, you'll see that in the Psalms, too, like that wisdom is by following the law. And what they mean is the, the Mosaic law, by entering into the law, It's more than just following the legal um, prescriptions of a code of law. 
It's more about entering into the law and living within that original holiness that God intends for his people through the law. And so that's what Sirach is getting at. So it's, a, there's a deep respect for the priesthood and the ancestors, um, especially Aaron, of course, with the priest. And it gives some sort of credibility to Simon II, who was the high priest around 200 AD, and there was some conflict going on at the time about that. In addition to it, it's a wisdom literature similar, similar to Proverbs, but it's more of a reflection by one man and not so much by Solomon. There, there are groups and themes that cover topics such as fear of God, duty, humility, charity, wisdom, modesty, wealth, friendship, children, priests, and prudence. So the whole point of Sirach is it's a book of wisdom to try to encourage someone to live the Jewish faith, not only as a set of rules and regulations and sacrifices, but as an expression of lived out wisdom in general. So remember in the beginning when I was talking about wisdom being more concerned with this and less concerned with that, and uh, the that was the Jewish history and the sacrifices and the worship. And so in, in traditional wisdom literature is more concerned with some of those more universal themes. So what Sirach does is he brings both of those together in the sense that says, well, if you want to have true wisdom, you not only need this type of reflective pursuit of wisdom, but you also need the practice of living the law and following its prescriptions. And then you have fullness of wisdom. So it just kind of added a, a bit of a emphasis in that. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the prophets again, because we got to go through a few of those. So first of all, I'm not going to go over it too much, because we already talked about the early prophets, and so many of that still applies. I'll just fill it in a little bit, because like a lot of institutions, prophets started with one thing, but then over time, the prophets develop as well. And so now I'm talking about prophets in the classical sense that you would see with the uh, prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel around the time of the uh, monarchy, and uh, less so with the early monarchy, but more with the later, just before the fall of the north and before the fall of the south, including the prophets that existed post-exile. And so some of the smaller, I shouldn't say smaller, the smaller books of the Bible what they call the minor prophets. They're not minor because their content is minor. They're called minor prophets because they're just the smaller books. So you've got things like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which are big, long books. And then you've got other ones like Malachi and Obadiah and Baruch and stuff like that. Those are the shorter little books. Okay, so what prophets do is now even more, there's this irresistible urge that what God puts and, you know, gives them by the Spirit, has to be spoken. There's this, this irresistible urge to speak what even they might not want to. So Jeremiah describes that even, you know, it's like, I had to. You know, it's almost like that sweet uh, scroll that you, you take, but then it kind of goes a little sour, and then you have to, meaning, you know, it's, it's so sweet that I can't help but get caught up in the Word of God, but at the same time, there's, there's an edge to it because as soon as I speak it, I always get persecuted because of it. And so there's this kind of sweet and sour imagery that happens there. But they become the mouthpiece of God, and they have to declare what God puts on their heart. There's that irresistible urge. 
So what prophets do is they read the signs of the times. So they're able to assess the situation, whether that's political, religious, or otherwise, um, the way people are living. They assess the situations, and they pronounce judgment. Now, typically, the judgment they pronounce is not necessarily to individuals, but it's more often to the whole people, in particular the people of Israel. Sometimes they pronounce judgment to individuals, like Nathan and, and David, for example, or Elijah and, and uh, Ahab. You know, so they, they do that as well. But most of the time when, when prophets are talking, they're talking to Israel as a whole. They offer a plan of repentance and restoration. And they sometimes give a glimpse of the future. So as you read through with the prophets, sometimes they say, you know, there will be this restoration that will happen at some time, and it will be done in the king of, you know, according to God's plan and in the line of the kings of David. And, you know, so sometimes they talk about that um, future that will happen at some time, but that's not a primary function. Usually it's always used as a bit of a carrot to get people to do what they need to do in the present, because that's mostly what prophets are looking for. There's threat that happens with a prophet. You know, look, if you don't do this, we're all going to be destroyed. So there are those kind of threats. The sword is going to find you if you don't change your way. And then there's consolation. Well, God will provide a remnant. You know, so, so chapter 40 in Isaiah, for example, starts a whole new... After the first part of Isaiah is talking about the, uh, the eventual fall of the north, because Isaiah originally was uh, in the court of the north before the, the fall of the northern kingdom afterwards then all of a sudden it, that that book of isaiah goes all the way to babylon and then it talks about the destruction and the fall and the, re- and the resurrection that happens after that but um there are three parts to isaiah the second part that starts at chapter 40 is comfort give comfort to my people so they've suffered so they suffered under assyria they suffered under babylon so now even while they're suffering god is saying Give comfort to my people. Let them know that I've got a plan. You know, that persevere in this, and then I will bring you back. And then there's the promises that come after that. All right. Rarely is a prophet given to an individual. It's almost always given to the community. And even when it's given to a king in particular, that represents, the king represents the people. And it's mostly to Israel, but sometimes... It's given to the nations, which means, you know, all the world. This happens at the later prophets. And by this time, they've understood that since God is the God of all, then we need to get this message not only to the king or the people of Israel, but to all people throughout the world. And so sometimes that happens as well in in the prophets. So there is a bit of a, a function that happens with prophets. First of all, there is an immediate experience of God, oftentimes caught up in a, in a mystical sense or an ecstatic type of presence of God. And uh, reading the beginning of Isaiah or Ezekiel will kind of show that. It does it in metaphorical language, but there's a spiritual connection that happens between God and the prophet, and the Spirit of God is given to them. And actually, even sometimes it'll say, in the so many days of King blah, 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 you know, the Spirit of God came to, and then you have the particular prophet. So there's a bit of a formula that can happen with the prophet. And so now they've got the Spirit. 
even though they're unworthy, God makes them worthy. You know, I'll take the incense and I'll, you know, um, purify you. I'll make your tongue holy so you can profess um, my, my word. So God's holiness is revealed to the prophet at some point. And they understand the present and the future through the yes of God. They say yes to God. And it reminds people of the duty to God and to bring them back. So the prophet reminds the people that they have a duty to God as their chosen people. And he's giving them a plan of obedience to bring them back so they can be back in right relationship with God in the covenant that they've been called to. And this is one of the unique things about uh, prophecy in Israel because it's, it's connected with God and it, and it unites an entire people and brings them back to a covenant relationship. And it's something that is usually spoken, but it's always something that has a plan of, of telling the people what they need to hear so they can become restored and once again be in right relationship with the covenant that God calls them to. So God does teach some particular things. And and this is the uniqueness of the Jewish prophets. So first of all, monotheism. And uh, remember when I talked last time about in the ancient world, they had these different ways of prophesying. A lot of times it was like by reading livers and cups and oil and in holes in the ground and uh, channeling and all these sort of things. So in the Jewish world, they didn't do all that. They just had a few select ways they would do it, but almost always it was an oral thing that was proclaimed. Sometimes it was done symbolically through actions like breaking of the clay pots or wearing the yoke, you know, saying this is what's going to happen to you and, you know, or having the prostitute wife. And, you know, so sometimes it was like that, but the majority of the times it was something that was proclaimed. So there was monotheism. There's one God. And especially by the time of the greater prophets, that there was an understanding that there was only one God. Literally, there weren't other gods at all. And so they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They got hands, but they cannot touch. You know? And so these are uh, explanations about how those idols that the pagans have, they're just senseless. They, they do nothing. They mean nothing because those gods don't even exist. God is transcendent. He's greater than us. He's holy. And he's purely holy. You know, there's no bad corruption, evil, anything. Um, God is mysterious in some ways. Mysterious in a way that doesn't mean unknowable or mysterious that means like um, it's a mystery. But mysterious in the way that means it's very profound. Um, We talk about the mystery of faith, for example. That doesn't mean, well, faith is a mystery. Who can know? what, What it means is it's so profound and deep you'll never exhaust its significance. So it's mysterious in that sense. Transcendent, holy, uh, profound beyond expression, above all. And God is kind, loving, and compassionate. So it's that hesed is the Greek or the uh, Hebrew word that's used there. But it just refers to this overflowing uh, love and connection with God and his people. Uh, prophets also talk about morality. There's an individual morality. There's a national morality. So individually, people are responsible for sin, but as a nation, they're responsible for sin as well. We tend to take the individual sin, and we tend to not so much uh, go for the national sin. So sometimes we think of like, well, the United States, we 
um, do all kinds of things we shouldn't do. You know, maybe engage in warlike practices in certain situations we shouldn't. Um, abortion, uh, capital punishment, um, various sins that we do as a nation. And then most of us can excuse ourselves from it by saying, well, I'm not doing it, so it's okay. You know, so we, we understand, I think, the idea of personal sin, but we don't always understand the idea of collective sin like the prophets proclaim. But they're very clear on that, that not only do we have individual accountability, but we also have national accountability. You know, in, in a sense this way, as a church, we have individual accountability, and as a church, we have an international accountability. You know, so we do have to be accountable as, as church people. We can't just say, well, yeah, but the church messed up here, but I'm not related to that. I didn't do it, so it's okay. You know, we have an obligation to address those issues and be accountable as a church, not only individuals. There's uh, also the idea of um, interpreting the law, because it's one thing to read the law, but you have to be able to interpret it into the, into the present day. And then also, laws talk about moral conduct and making religion something that's not just an external expression by the practices, but it's an internal religion of the heart. And so Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah especially cover those. And actually, so does Amos and many of the others. The idea that we live out our religion from within, and it's something that we profess um, with the heart as well as just going through the motions. And finally, there is a future salvation. There, there's a resolution, there's a completion, and there's a promise that, that is that the prophets express, and that there will be happiness, peace, restoration, not only of people, but of the land. There will be fertility, prosperity, hope, holiness, peace, joy, knowledge of God, and a Messiah. There will be a Savior. And there will always be a remnant. The remnant um, idea comes a lot from Isaiah that But even if it seems that all of Israel is lost, God will always preserve a remnant because his way and his message needs to be passed down until he um, completes his plan. Now, in the Christian sense, what we can do is we can look back at salvation history and say, well, you had the kings, you have the prophets, and then they look forward to this Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. That's the restoration. And his death and resurrection bring us into the new kingdom. And so now that promise, the promise of the prophets had been fulfilled in Jesus, who is the uh, Messiah. You know, so basically we kind of go that route. All right, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations to a certain degree, Baruch to a certain degree, um, Ezekiel. So those are the major prophets. The minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The only reason those are minor prophets, these are all in your book and stuff, by the way, but the reason those are minor prophets, they're just smaller books. So it doesn't mean that they're less important. They're just smaller books. Let me give you an idea of when these different prophets lived. All right. Now, sometimes the books, although they reference a certain prophet, the books might contain material which is newer than the prophets. So Elijah, 870 B.C., 850 B.C., Elisha. You know, so that, those are the first two biggies. And then, you know, obviously you have the other ones that existed before them, but when it comes to the classical prophets, they would start the list. 
Amos and Hosea, they were in the north, 750 B.C. And then you've got Micah and the call of Isaiah. So now we're 740 B.C. This is just before the Assyrians came down and sacked and, and uh, dispersed the northern kingdom. 630, you've got Zephaniah. 627, the call of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was, was called to be prophet while he was young. And while he was young, he was trying to prophesy to let the king and the people know not to rebel against Babylon, um, but they did anyway. And then after they did, he says, well, all right, we're going to Babylon, just suck it up and do it, and we're going to be there for a while, so, you know, get your stuff in order. Anyway, that's Jeremiah. Then after, you've, you also have some other contemporaries, like Nahum and Habakkuk. And then Ezekiel is just in that transition so remember, 587 is when Israel was sacked. And Ezekiel, most of the writings came, actually, you can tell there was a shift. So his style of writing is more in the exile. So odds are, what we have of Ezekiel was, was after the exile and during the exile, not before. You know, because he's talking about, um, talking about what they have to do while they're in exile. And then... Parts of Isaiah. So you've got, let's see, 550. But yeah, Isaiah is tricky because it starts out. Where'd he go? There he is. Okay. So it starts out up here, the historical Isaiah. But you do have someone writing second Isaiah. So basically, it, it's in the same corpus of writings, but it's dealing with a different time. And so that's from chapter 40. And this is while they're in exile in Babylon. And then there's also another part of Isaiah, which is just a little later than that. But anyway, 520, they're in exile. Haggai and Zechariah. And here, 440, you've got Malachi and Obadiah. And so this is the very beginning here. Joel, Jonah, Daniel. Daniel is a tricky one. And uh, Jonah is as well because... Although there was a prophet named Jonah, he was way earlier than that. And the book itself was written to be more of a parable than a book of prophecy. Uh, Joel, though, definitely prophecy. And uh, from here on up, then Joel in 340 is really ushering in the, the newness of the kingdom along with some of the other ones like Zechariah. So, so anyway, it gives you a bit of a timeline. So not all the prophets came from the same period of time. They were dealing with different circumstances. But what's interesting is that even though they span from, you know, like 500 years, they have a very similar overall message of the things that they taught. Okay, Isaiah is one of the big books. And he was born in... 765, and he received his prophetic calling, and then he began his ministry. So this would be the first 40 chapters of Isaiah that refer to the time before the Assyrian deportation of the north. What's interesting about Isaiah is that the style of Hebrew is really a high point in Old Testament literature. Um, he's got a temple vision. God is holy, strong, and mighty. Human beings are sinful and lowly. God insists on justice. God asks for trust, even though they're in crisis. And there's this prediction, chapter 10, verse 20, that a remnant will always 
be spared, that, that God will spare his people one way or another. Then we also have the messianic prophecy that the Messiah will come and establish peace, justice, and knowledge of God. By the way, Jesus loved Isaiah. He quoted him all the time. So Isaiah was a huge book, so you might say, well, of course, you know, 66 chapters or whatever it is, of course he's going to quote him. But a lot of what Jesus expressed was fulfillment specifically of Isaiah. All right, so here are some of the issues. There was a moral corruption that was happening at the time. And Isaiah was calling people to repent. And he was telling Ahaz, don't appeal to Assyria for help. And of course, at first it seemed like it was going to work. But then later it didn't because um, at the end, he ended up appealing to Assyria anyway. Assyria came in and, and wiped him out. But it was, or I shouldn't say appeal to Assyria. And after the failure of his mission, he withdraws from public work. So, yeah, basically the Assyrians were coming down and, and Isaiah was telling them that they needed to follow God's ways and then he would take care of them. Um, but instead, they, they dabbled too much. They trusted in Egypt against Assyria instead of trusting in God. And because of that, Egypt couldn't help. Assyrians came down and pillaged them and then sent them off into exile. So this is second Isaiah. So Jerusalem, they went back and they settled in Babylon. And so this was that, what we call it, it's almost like a new exodus where they're being, after being freed from slavery and captivity and brought into the promised land, now they're being sent back uh, to captivity and away from the promised land. So the first 12 chapters are sayings against Jerusalem and Judah. Chapters 13 through 23, those are sayings against the nations. Chapter 24 through 35, those are promises. Okay, so first there's the, uh, the prophecy and, and the different uh, are calling the tasks that needed to happen. And then afterwards, there's the promise. And then there's the account of Isaiah during Sennacherib's campaign when he came down and sacked the north. So that would be the, the first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through chapter 40. But here's the problem with even the south, that there was this assum- assumption that God would protect, uh, protect them regardless of what they did. Well, we got God's promise, so it doesn't matter what we do. God will preserve you know, David's reign as he promised. And you've got some problems as well with different times with different kings. Um, Manasseh, for example, from 687 to 642, um, he's considered the worst in the nation's history. He supported false gods, rebuilt altars and shrines to pagan gods, and even put some in the temple. He consulted magicians and astrologers, innocent, uh, murdered innocent people. He even sacrificed his son, probably to Moloch, which was a, a Moabite god. Assyrians controlled his rule, and there are no reported prophets during his reign. You know, so that was definitely a low part. Eventually, of course, there were different reforms that came on, and Josiah's reform was the big one. You know, so we we already heard about that. Now, Deutero means second Isaiah. So, in the time of second Isaiah. 
you have the book of consolation. And the book of consolation is, okay, everyone, I know you've suffered a lot, but God has a plan, and he still loves you. He's going to save you, and this is how he's going to do it. And so he has a deliverer, and that deliverer actually specifically was named Cyrus, chapter 45, verse 1, that he's going to allow the people to go back and return. And then in addition to that, you've got this new exodus. It's predicted it'll be greater than the first. And then you've got something else, this religious universalism being expressed. So in chapters 43, uh, 44, and 45, it, it mentions that you are going to be a light to the nations. And so this idea that God's revelation is not just for the Jews, but for all people, and that they will be the instruments of that. All right. So before we go to Jeremiah, you've got some certain themes that you'll find throughout Isaiah. Justice triumphs. God will preserve a remnant. There's worship and service from the heart. The covenant will be renewed, and the covenant is eternal. There's a special favor to Jerusalem, and then that will be renewed as well. And God will judge all the nations, and all nations will be brought according to his ways. So that's universalism that comes to a conclusion in Isaiah. All right, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, we showed the date before, so i got to move ahead a little bit. But So Jeremiah is down this way. Prophesied the 70 years of exile, chapter 25. And this was... 70 years, remember they had two deportations, so it starts from the first and it goes through the conclusion. So here you have the 600 revolt of Jehoiakim, which was dumb because um, it seemed that he actually had some sort of an agreement with the Babylonians where the Babylonians were going to leave him alone, but since he revolted, then the Babylonians came in and just utterly destroyed everything. So here you have Zedekiah, the last king, and that was in 597. And the first deportation after the capture of Jerusalem and the final capture and fall of the temple, 587. That's kind of the magic number. And then 538, Edict of Cyrus, that's when they got to come back. You know, so this is the basic timeline. So... I got the right. I see my notes aren't matching that for some reason. All right, I'll go from these. So the basic message of Jeremiah has to do with disloyalty causing the tragedy. So that if Israel was loyal, loyal to the prophets as well as God's ways, then, you know, these, um, the Assyrians would not have sacked them in the first place. Later, or the uh, Babylonians. And then also, there's disaster unless there's conversion, not only in their external actions, but in their hearts. They have to follow God in, in that way. And Jeremiah predicts, by the way, that there will be a new covenant that will be written on our hearts. You probably remember this from some of the readings that we have. So the idea there is that the covenant will be renewed in a way where it becomes internalized. 
And it's not just follow the law, but it's more you will be, the law will be in your hearts and you will follow it just as a, a natural expression of, of who you are and how you're in relationship with God. So this is it. Don't seek help from foreign powers. Turn to God and his promises. Turn from idolatry. Circumcise your hearts. You know, instead of an external action, look to the internal. Um, there is a predicted exile. And ultimately he says, don't resist, but wait for the future hope. It's like one of those uh, prophetic moments when Jeremiah is saying, well, it's too late. So your best shot now is to go along with it and then um, make the best of it, make lemonade out of the lemons, and then eventually God is going to bring you back. And when he does bring you back, you know, there's going to be um, a, a full restoration in a way that's going to be beyond your imagining. And then there's this connection with the Messiah who is part of that as well. All right. I'm cruising a little bit because I only got about a half hour. So, Well, here's something good to consider as well. Jeremiah was a failure in his lifetime. Because everything that he said and he wanted people to do, they didn't do. Every time he talked, they would persecute him. At one point, they threw him in the well, and he's sinking in the mud, and he's like, Lord, what are you doing? You know, and so it was only after his, after his death that, that Jeremiah, they, they started to see that, oh, wow, he was a good prophet. Let's make all kinds of little memorials to him and stuff. You know, but in his day, you know, he, he didn't have the happy prophet life. Okay, Lamentations. A traditional author is the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Um, but it was written after the fall of Jerusalem at some point. And the author, who is unknown, may have been Jeremiah, but probably not. He describes the mourning of the city and its people. And the prayer of Lamentations comes to trust in God, repentance, and to trust in eventual restoration. So there are, there are chapters 1, 2, and 4, which are lamentations for those who have died. There's chapter 3, lamentations for individual lament. And then chapter 5 is more of a collective sorrow that gets expressed. And the purpose of the book, it's not like he's just, you know, whining because of, oh, woe is me. But it's remembering the reason for the exile. And then it's okay to bring prayer into these situations. So the idea of praying and lament, it, it stretches out hope to God even when you're in that situation. It also keeps alive the importance of Jerusalem, the temple, and the law. It has trust that God will have pity in our sorrow, sufferings, and lamenting in our prayer. And uh, it also says that the Lord will one day avenge those who took advantage of our loneliness or lowliness. And uh, all those, of course, like I said, sometimes we think that to be religious, you have to be rosy all the time. And you don't really. I think God just wants us to be real. So if we're suffering a real tragedy, bring it to God. You, know, you don't have to pretend like, you know, well, nope, God only wants my happy best. You know, we, can, we can be who we are. And we have biblical books that, that express it in that way. 
All right. Where are we at? So I'm going to talk a little bit about Ezekiel. Ezekiel is interesting for a few different reasons. One is that Ezekiel, since it's post-exile, he begins the first stages of what later would become more like what they call apocalyptic literature, meaning heavy symbolism and showing dramatic events through these different metaphors. The book of Revelation, for example, is, is one of those types of books. And uh, the book of Daniel has a lot of that as well. But Ezekiel is kind of the beginning of that style of writing. But there was a prophet, Ezekiel, son of Buzi. Not a good name for your kids, but this is my, my son, Buzi. But uh, Ezekiel means God strengthens. And he was a priest, or at least he was of the priestly tradition. Then, uh, so the dates, 598, Ezekiel is one of the 10,000 Jerusalem elite that were deported. And then later on, his ministry was actually from Babylon from 593 to 571. So it was during that first period of the exile. So it starts out where Ezekiel's in Jerusalem, and then there's the scroll that is his vocation to to be a prophet. And then Ezekiel goes into exile. Here you have the chariot arriving in exile. It's written as a first person prophetic report. And the reports are dated and and they're written in a way that are systematically arranged. Um, Ezekiel's a little difficult to read. I don't know if you've done that because there's a lot of symbolism. in it. So if you do read Ezekiel, then you'll be well served if you have a good Bible with notes and commentary. It just helps put everything in, in, in somewhat of a context. So, so first of all, you've got warnings of destruction. Then you've got the foreign nations and the prophecies there. And then you have the messages of hope. Let's make sure. Okay, so the, in the history, you do have some themes. One is the temple itself. The temple has been defiled by impure rites and has been deserted by God. The temple of the renewed future and God's return. So that happens later, chapters 40 through 42, and then God returns, 43. So if you're looking at it in, in a broad sense, it's like, okay, you know what? The Babylonians went through and destroyed the temple. But God left because it was being impure and it was defiled by the way we were worshiping. So God left anyway. But there will be a time in the future where this will be restored and then God will return. You know, so this talks about the exile and the return from the exile. It, it has high regard for legal purity and then also the sacred and then the law and the morals um, that if they live according to those law and the morals, like the holiness code, then God will bless them even if they're away. So even when they're in Babylon, he does symbolic gestures as prophecy, you know, like the brick and the pan, um, the seas ending in a massacre where God would not protect, protect the city. Then there's an overall expression of God's awe and his presence. And there are some appeals to the past. So what Ezekiel's doing is the, the style of writing is using heavy 
holy uh, and transcendent images to show that God is still all-powerful and all-holy. We have sinned, so we are suffering and we are in exile because of that. But in the meantime, we have to live out our holiness and allow God to have a hold in us as the people so that when we have the restoration and we turn, we return back to Jerusalem, the temple will be restored and God will enter back into it. And so there's a description of the of the temple being restored that, that we use in some of our, our feasts. And the idea of the water coming up and flooding and all this is just symbolic of the greatness and the grandeur of what God will accomplish in the full restoration of his presence in the temple, in the new temple. All right. The uh, dry bones coming to life, chapter 37. Um, we read that, and it, it's like a, a story of resurrection. But in, in Ezekiel's day, it was also looking at the people of Israel who had been desecrated and abandoned, so to speak. And so they're going to be rebuilt. And so little by little, it's like, it's like the bones come together, and then the sinews, and then the muscle, and then the flesh, and then God breathes his life into them. And the idea there is that Yes, they're in exile, and they've been defeated, but God will breathe new life into them, and they will be restored. So it's a, it's a metaphor of restoration. And then chapters 40 through 48, it's like I was talking about. It's the future temple in glory. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about Daniel. So remember when I was talking earlier about books that were written that deal with a certain situation, but the history is pushed back a few hundred years, and the idea is to take the history of the past and tell the story in a way that applies to the, to the present. So Daniel is one of those stories. The author's timetable goes to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. So this is around 605 B.C., Although this was written in the Greek period, which was during the persecutions like we read or like we heard in Maccabees. And so those persecutions were taking place, you know, around 170 uh, AD or BC. So you've got a huge time difference. But this is written in a way where it's reflecting back on the past using the stories of Daniel, who is a prophet and a wise man and a seer. And it's applying that to their situation a few hundred years later. So this is the timeline of the book that's being referred to, mostly in this area. And then the timeline of the literature is around in this area, the persecution. Like like Daniel be talking about Zeus and the temple and the great persecution and, and that sort of thing. I'll show you an example of that. In a second, but first let me describe the sections. All right, so you've got some narratives. So Daniel is, the, the question is, now that, now that Daniel's in exile, how does he live? Does he live like the Babylonians? No, he doesn't. So he, he, he gets permission to live like a Jew and eat, and eat clean food and live in a way that is according to the law. He has visions. First, there's the statue and then you also have the beasts. And so the statues and the beasts, that 
that different vision mean basically the same thing. So let me give you an example of that. So the king saw this vision, and he's asking Daniel to interpret the vision and tell him what it means. And so Daniel says, In your vision, O king, you saw a statue, a very large and exceedingly bright statue, terrifying in appearance as it stood before you. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs bronze. The legs iron. Its feet partly iron and partly tile. While you're looking at the statue, a stone which was honed from the mountain without a hand being put to it struck its iron and tile feet, breaking it in pieces. The iron, tile, bronze, silver, and all the gold crumbled at once. Finest shaft on the threshing floor in summer. And the wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone that struck the statue became the great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so that's Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 36. And so later on, he describes what this means, you know, to this King Nebuchadnezzar. But what it means are these are different empires. So you have the first empire, which is the Babylonians. So the head, that's the head of the statue, pure gold. And its chest were silver. And then you have the thighs, bronze, and the legs, iron. So the silver would be the Medes. And then, because you have the Babylonians, the Medes. And then you have the Persians, that would be the bronze. And then you have the Greeks, Alexander the Great would be iron. And then you would have iron and tile, and that would be the post-Alexander the Great, those different generals who were Greek. So they're partially iron, but tile meant that they were um, separated from each other. So you had these different, um, different Greek kingdoms, basically. And the idea here is that there is going to be a stone which is going to come in and hit the statue and shatter all those former kingdoms, and a great new kingdom will come in its place. And that is the Messianic kingdom. Bless you. So it's the Messianic kingdom. Now, we can look back at that and say, well, that that did happen, didn't it? So you have all these subsequent kingdoms, and then later you've got Jesus, who is the Messiah, and he begins a new kingdom that will stand forever, which is a mountain that no one can destroy, and it supersedes all the previous kingdoms. Now, what Daniel didn't know and what... people didn't know, of course, is that this new kingdom would be a whole new reality. But still, we can look at these types of images, and it, and it kind of shows that progression, getting to the Messiah, uh, who is Jesus. There's an, another series of different animals that, you know, the lion and the leopard and all those. Bless you. <laughs> so, But it's the same set of kingdoms that are being described. They're just using different imagery. Let's see if I can show you this. Remember in the past where I, I showed different, uh, what they call chiasms, and it's just how things are layered? So Daniel is one of the few books in the Bible. For It's written in, in uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. So the Greeks at the end, the Aramaic and the Hebrew, they're kind of in the middle there. But anyway, in this section from chapter 925, to 927, there's a, kind of a connection here. So Jerusalem connection, return and rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then 925b, the anointed one is mentioned. That'd be the Messiah. 925c, Jerusalem's construction, restored and rebuilt. 
And then 926, here you have the anointed one. So here's the prince, here's the anointed one. And then Daniel 26b, you've got the city ruined. So here it's restored, here it's ruined. And then here you have he, which is the anointed one, the anointed prince. And then down here at the bottom, you have Jerusalem destroyed. So these are those kind of parallels that you see in, in a lot of the ancient literature. And you see it in the Old Testament as well as the New. It's just an example of that. But in actually the book of Daniel has a lot of these sort of things. Yeah, that's the one I showed. There, they went through that. Hosea. All right, so Hosea is... Now, the good thing about these books, I'm, going to, I'm just going to briefly skim, but they can be read fairly easily because they're really pretty short. And you've got Hosea, who was a prophet of the north from 734 in that time when the Syria was advancing. And there were four kings assassinated in 15 years. So it was a very unstable period in the history. But Hosea was, was being called to prophesy, and he was showing that the Israelites were not being faithful, and they were similar to an image of marriage, that God intends there to be this sacred covenant bond between his people and himself, and then that would be um, similar to marriage in a sense. His own domestic problems became a sign of the prophecy that he would offer the people. In particular, uh, his beautiful wife, Gomer, who breaks his heart, In a similar way, Israel is the bride of God who has become the harlot, aroused anger and jealousy, and broken God's heart. So it's showing a connection in this way. And there's one one section, Hosea 6, chapter 6, verse 6. For it is love that I desire, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than a holocaust. So that's something that will come later and later, this idea of, purity of worship coming from the heart. You may have noticed that with a lot, of the, a lot of the prophets, that it's no longer good enough just to say, hey, we're following the Mosaic law. Everything's wonderful. It's like God wants their hearts, not just their superficial actions. And so it's a combination of that. And so the relationship between God and his people, like the bride and the bridegroom, becomes somewhat of a, an additional thread that you'll see. And that thread through the Old Testament will find its realization in the New Testament where Jesus is is the bridegroom and the church is the bride and we are caught up in this covenant relationship and that relationship between Jesus and the church reflects the groom and the bride. So Jesus himself uses all kinds of bridal imagery. The idea of like these these marriage banquets in Cana and and uh, you know the idea of Jerusalem um, being you know a connection to that daughter Zion. But anyway, so A lot of that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. Joel. Okay, Joel is a very short book as well. And the the theme of Joel is this awesome day of the Lord. And he'll talk about it like the doom or the, uh, the awesome or the mighty or the great. 
And the point is there that there will come a time when God will judge evil and good would prevail. People are called to repentance and public worship is emphasized. But there will be this new age where there's this outpouring of the Spirit. It's chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And it's in an answer to Moses' prayer in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 29. They think this was written sometime at the end of the prophetic age in the 400s BC, but they're not exactly sure. They know it's post-exile. But the idea there is, once again, that God is going to pronounce judgment on the nations and he will triumph in the end. And therefore, we should look forward to this outpouring of that new prophetic spirit and the new era that he will bring about by restoring and the restoration of the messianic kingdom. You know, so Joel is another one of those short books, but one that tends to be um, very powerful in its own right. Similar to Joel, Amos, which is more ancient. But Amos is kind of funny because he was a prophet who didn't want to be a prophet. He was from the south. He was a farmer and a herdsman in Judah. And the north, um, they were kind of in a period of prosperity. And the people were becoming materialistic and prosperous and then chasing after Canaanite gods and and forgetting the ways of of Yahweh. So he went up and preached to them and prophesied um, during the period where Jeroboam II was reigning in the north. So that's 783. So you can see that's a long time. And... He had a morality, but at the same time as he was telling people they needed to follow these moral ways, especially he was especially critical about the rich people oppressing the poor, forcing them uh, to work in ways that were unjust, not paying them, and uh, people being overly materialistic and uh, cheating in their weights and, and not following uh, the law or the moral code. And for that, of course, people said, oh, so good to see you, Amos. Uh, they didn't really like him. And then at that point, he's saying, well, I don't really care because I didn't, I didn't want to do this anyway. God made me do it. You know, and he's from the south and he's preaching up north. You know, but there is going to be the day of salvation for the house of Jacob and the remnant of Joseph's because he's talking up north. And that basically is another part of that promise of one way or another, there will be this restoration that will happen. You know, and that hinting about the combination again of the north and south that are split, that they will come back together in some way. Okay, let me look at Jonah. Is it a whale or is it a fish? Both. Okay, I'll show you another fun one. So if you look at this, you've got Jonah chapter 1, 4 through 16. Remember that whole chiasm thing? So you've got these parallels. Here's A, A prime. Sailors fear and the sea is angry. The sea calms and the sailors fear God. Sailors cry to their gods. The sailors cry to God. Attempt to save the ship. They try to save the ship and fail. But you see how there's that interesting layering that happens like this? And... It's something to keep in mind as as you're reading something, you're saying, well, this follows a weird kind of logic. Kind of ask yourself, well, may have this been a style of writing that that is different than us. But there's a certain brilliance in being able to write in this way and to make those kind of parallels and conventions. And then as you read the story, it still follows perfectly well. You know, so that's kind of part of the genius of some of these texts. 
So let me see. So here's the point about Jonah. Okay, first of all, you know enough about the Assyrians now, right? So Jonah was called to go preach to the Assyrians and get them to repent. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So who would want the Assyrians to repent? They're savages. They're ruthless. You know, look at all the ridiculous, crazy, and savage things that they do. Yet at the same time, God says, Okay, Jonah, we want you to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to do it. So he fights, he fights it the whole time. Eventually what happens, of course, he tries to escape and go the opposite direction. And then the people on the ship find out about it, throw him in. You know, the fish or the whale takes him and spits him on shore. And then Jonah says, okay, I guess I'll go. So then he goes. He, pre- he preaches repentance. After he preaches repentance, then they actually repent. And he's mad that they repented. And then the conclusion of the story, he goes off and he's wallowing in his, in his anger. And then all of a sudden, God makes a big plant grow over and gives him shade. He's all happy that there's shade for a brief moment. But then God sends a worm to kill the plant. And then the plant dies. And then Jonah's like, I am so angry. I'm angry so much. Take me now. You know, and it, it, there's got to be some humor written into that, you know. So Jonah has written like a big, long parable that talks about how God wants all people to be converted and to come to him, even the people who are the biggest savages. And so if God can save the Ninevites, then who are we as Jews not to try to get conversion from all the other people around us? So it's, it's a parable told for a certain moral lesson. God loves the Gentiles. God controls all nature and people. It's making fun of this narrow nationalism. It's all about the Jews, and it's all about our land, and and it's making fun of that mentality. Um, It's a satire, and it's based in a type of hypocrisy, and there are different layers for that, even down to the point it's like um, the little plant that grows over and gives him shade and then dies, and he's whining about it. He did nothing to raise that plant. God reminds him, but God is also strange and a little humorous. You know, by some of the stories that you get in that. Um, the other is, we can't make God, or we can't judge him by our own desires. So in other words, we may be angry about something, but we can't make God do what he doesn't want to do. You know, so it kind of says, who's in control and who's not? Good old Jonah. Well, here's the thing. It was written as a parable. It's a story. But there was a historical Jonah that was mentioned much earlier than that. And there may have been a story or a legend that that was connected to Jonah. I can't tell you how historical it was or wasn't. Um, but in my personal opinion, I think you have to take these kinds of stories and read it in the context of a parable or a story more so than history that just happened to follow a perfect line of literary um, parable style. So the safer approach would be that it was written almost as a historical fiction, but with a purpose or moral that is much more important than whether or not 
you know, he was literally swallowed by a well and spit up on shore. And because some of the descriptions don't really match up either. When it took him three days to walk through Nineveh, Nineveh wasn't that big, you know. So it's exaggerating for emphasis in, in some of these details that you have in the story. All right. Almost an awesome name. I like that one. Micah. If he just would have left it at Mike, it would have been fine. But I tell you what, these are what we call minor prophets. And since I only have a couple more minutes, yeah, I'm just going to do a brief summary of all of them. All right, so Micah, criticizing money hungry capitalists, <laughs> dishonest tradesmen, family rivalry. Greedy, opportunistic priests. All right, I'm including myself. (laughs) Prophets, tyrants, and judges. So the ideal, of course, is that you have been told what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do right, to love goodness, and walk humbly with your God. Anyway, short little books. Everyone likes that last phrase. They don't like the first parts. Yeah, Nahum. All right, this is before the fall of Nineveh. And it's like a song, a judgment over Nineveh due to their own crimes. So in other words, there is another thread that comes around through the Old Testament. And that is that God does allow other kingdoms and empires to be able to conquer and oppress Israel. But he allows it, but it doesn't mean that he favors it. And it doesn't mean that they should take advantage of that opportunity. And so God punishes those who punish Israel, even though he allows them to come in the first place. So in other words, Babylonians and Assyrians, you're not off the hook. Just because God allows you to go in there doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer the consequences for your sin by going in and doing what you did. And so here's some of the judgments that happen there. A little bit of that happens also in Habakkuk. Another beautiful baby name if you're interested. This was after the fall of Nineveh. And so Habakkuk was looking at Nineveh and it was writing a bit of a, you know, well, you got what's coming to you. You know, a little bit of that. There are complaints and answers. And then there's the final triumph of God. And so the Chaldeans, that would be the Babylonians, were used to punish Israel. But then then the question is, well, why enable a people that are worse than us? And the point is that, well, because we've sinned, that God allowed this to happen. But in the end, his justice will be applied to the wicked as well as the righteous. You know, so it's kind of a quick, simple point. Zephaniah was during the reign of Josiah. So remember the Josiah's reform. And he was prophesying in the early part of Josiah before the reform and before Jeremiah. And there's the part one, the day of the Lord. That's another thing. There will come this day when the Lord effects his glory and his triumph and his righteousness. And so Zephaniah also talks about the day of the Lord, just like Amos and Joel. There are prophecies against the nations, against Jerusalem, but then at the end there are promises. So there will be, yes, a day of the Lord that will affect all the nations, and sin is a personal effect, offense against God, but there will be salvation for the remnant. 
Okay, so just real quick. You may or may not have heard of this word anawim. That is that humble, poor um, remnant. So when the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the only people who remained were the poor peasants. But there was this uh, sentiment that came out that those poor peasants who were remaining in Israel were favored by God in some way because in their simplicity and in their poverty, they relied on God for their very livelihood and therefore they were rewarded by being allowed to live in the land. And then eventually when there was the restoration, the Anawim would have continued on. Um, in the New Testament, the Anawim um, mentality was also brought about, especially in the Gospel of Luke, where it shows uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus even as being part of that like Anawim. So the poor, um, the poor insignificant people who God richly blesses. Anyway, that has Old Testament roots as well. Zephaniah, I did that one. Haggai. Well, ritual purity. Okay, there's three points. The land is suffering because the people are only thinking of their houses and their livelihood. If the people want to recover, they need to build a house for Yahweh. And the land has been defiled and needs to be purified and consecrated. Why that one's important for other reasons is that it really demonstrates the mentality that the Jews had about this sanctity of the land itself. So it's more than just the land that they live in. It's the holy land which should reflect the holiness of God himself. So it needs to be cared for and preserved according to the holiness in which it is. So I talked about that as well. Why it is that you just didn't, you know, throw dead bodies on the land and, you know, you would need to preserve the land, that that would be an outrage. Or having the blood go into the land, it, it cries out to God for vengeance. And so the idea of the land itself is holy. They put them in caves and stuff just because, yeah, that would be just the process of burial. Burial's fine, but it's just to murder and let them lay on the land. There has to be a burial of some sort. Okay, Zechariah. You have three oracles, eight visions. So there's the rebuilding of the temple, the role of the high priest Joshua, these different images and purifications. And then the second part, chapters 9 through 14, that's poetry that consequences concentrates on God shepherding Israel. And then another, the day of the Lord will come when all will be transformed. All right, so once again, you'll see that pattern starting to form. Same sort of thing. All right, here's the last one. I got a minute. (laughs) Malachi, he condemns abuses, abuses in Israel that Ezra needed to reform. Priests are performed imperfect and careless, and people were marrying pagans and divorcing lightly. They were not paying tithes and offerings. So there's the warning to repent and turn back to God and his ways, which are the law. There you go. There it is. Okay, see you in a few months. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. 
May God bless you.